0: Expanding our creativity, um, our potential—all of these types of things begin to open up. Sometimes, just after the first time you go to a yoga class, lie down and rest a for ten minutes, you open up a, a totally new person when you when you open your eyes up again.
1: Hello, yogis, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Dharma Talk. I'm your host Henry Winslow, and this is episode number fifty-nine. And this week, the timing of this episode is just perfect. My guest is none other than Eddie Stern, Ashtanga yoga teacher and legend in New York City, who happens to be hosting Sharat Paramaguru of Ashtanga Yoga's tour through the US and through NYC specifically this weekend. And although we didn't talk about that too much on this interview, Hopefully, if you live in the area, you can stop through and meet the two of them. However, on this interview, we do get into quite a wide breadth of topics, and we go deep. Eddie and I discuss what researchers have learned from the breathing patterns of cosmonauts in outer space, yogis, and monks, what they have in common. And how Eddie has helped thousands of people benefit from this so-called coherence or resonance breathing for free we talk about how bringing our breath into an ideal frequency hacks the autonomic nervous system and keeps us from defaulting to a stress overdrive we get into the one simple thing or underlying connection between all yoga practitioners no matter their lineage or school of choice we talk the value of personal experience through practice without anticipation of any particular results. And finally, we chat about how and why Eddie is offering free trainings to urban youth in Jamaica, Queens to learn how to teach yoga. All of that is coming up very soon. Please just stay tuned through these announcements, and we'll dive into my interview with Eddie Stern. This episode is brought to you in part by OM Men's Yoga Apparel. I love this brand, especially their two dogs, shorts, and the Dharma pants because, well, they've got a great name, but also they're lightweight, flexy, stretchy, and really stay out of your way in your practice in the best way possible. And right down to the ethos of their brand, OM is all about conscious movement in and outside of the mat. They aim to minimize their impact on the environment by using recycled fabrics, which is really great. And ultimately, it's all about getting more men out of their heads and into a consistent movement practice to help them live life to the fullest. So here's the deal. OM is giving you 15% off your order if you use code DARMA15 at checkout. So that's om, O-H-M-M-E, dot com. Use code Dharma, D-H-A-R-M-A, 15 for 15% off your order. Guys, take advantage of this. Get a pair of shorts, some pants, maybe a t-shirt. You're going to love it. Now for the teaching calendar. On June 1st, I'll be leading a backbending workshop at Yoga to the People in Brooklyn. On June 22nd and 23rd, I will be giving a weekend of workshops at Yoga to the People St. Mark's in Manhattan. First one on arm balancing, second one a purification practice with mantra, pranayama, and kriya. In July and August, I'll be helping out with the 300-hour teacher training at Lighthouse Yoga School. For that one, be sure to enter code HENRYWINS on your application to save $100 on the tuition. And then October 25th through October 27th, Veronica and I will be leading a weekend of workshops in Bucerías, Mexico. Please join us for any or all of these events. The details are at henrywins.com slash events. What's your purpose? What's your vision? What mark will you leave on this planet long after you're gone? i'm henry winslow and you're listening to dharma talk the only podcast where i interview inspirational yogis on how they're changing the world in their own unique ways whether you're still searching for your purpose or already walking the path i hope these stories get you excited to live your dharma hello dharma talk community and welcome back to another episode today it is my pleasure to have eddie stern on the podcast Eddie is a yoga teacher, author, and lecturer from New York City. He is known for his expertise in teaching Ashtanga yoga, as well as for his work in furthering access to yoga and meditation in underserved populations. He is the creator of the Breathing app, and his latest book, One Simple Thing, is out now. Eddie, thank you for taking the time this morning to chat with me and share some of your wisdom of yoga with the Dharma Talk community. How are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm doing well. I just got back from a a trip to Austin, Texas and I'm relieved to be back in the comfort and routine of my daily life here. Now we always start these interviews with the same uh, first question. So I wanna give you a chance to uh, to answer that question, which is this. What does the word Dharma mean to you? And what is your Dharma as you understand it today?
0: Uh, Well, the word Dharma is um, part of an equation as far as I understand it in the Hindu tradition of um, Dharma, Artha, Kama, and Moksha. And those four are the different stages of life that we all cycle through. And dharma is knowing what it is you're supposed to be doing in your life, whether it's a job or some type of a purpose. And artha is having the means to do that, which is like making money or having the facility to accomplish the things that your purpose or work has laid out for you. And kama is the fulfillment of desires related to, um, what it is that you're trying to do in your life, and then moksha is liberation, the final stage. So um, that's basically how I understand dharma. is as, as, uh, It's not independent from all those other things, but it's part of part of that um, quadrangle of, of processes about our life. So, but maybe I understand it wrong. Um, but that's you know for the most part what I've gleaned over the years um, in the Gita when. Arjuna is on the battlefield with Krishna and they're having that long conversation because Arjuna is um, hesitant to go into battle. Um, He's hesitating about the first part of his life, which is, or the first part of the equation, which is Dharma. And without following that Dharma, uh, he can't possibly cycle through the other phases and get to moksha or liberation. So this is one of the things that Krishna warns him that if you don't follow this duty, which you were bound to do, then it will just lead you to an endless cycle of suffering. But if you do the things that um, life has set out for you, that you were bound to do, then it will lead you to to liberation and freedom. Of course, it's a complicated book.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes. And Eddie, how do you feel about your current understanding of your Dharma at this stage of your life?
0: Oh, I don't really think of it so much that way. Um, uh, I I don't think about um, uh, me having necessarily a personal dharma in my life. Uh, I just do the things that I'm really drawn to that I like to do, and I do them as fully as I can and and as best that I can. And um, and, and, and hopefully they are things that are beneficial to the people around me and to myself as well.
1: So let's talk about some of those things. Um, you've, you've created the Breathing app, and you have uh, your new book, which is out now. I know that you're doing some, some touring to share that message with yoga studios and yoga students and basically anyone that can benefit from that. But um, why don't we start with the app? How did you have the idea to create that, and um, what was your process in, in bringing that to life?
0: Okay, uh, awesome. Thanks for asking that. Um, The breathing app is based on something called coherence or resonance breathing. And resonance breathing is when you slow your breath rate down to a cycle of between five and seven breaths per minute. Normally, we breathe anywhere from 15 to 18 or some people 12 to 15 breaths per minute. And um, the um, reason that resonance breathing kind of became a thing or a known thing was uh, from two different... Um Two different observations. One was from a couple of Russian scientists in St. Petersburg, then it was known as Leningrad in the 1960s, when they were monitoring the first cosmonauts who were going up in satellites. and um, they noticed that there were certain times of the day when they were performing with very high aptitudes. And the only measurements that really they could get beamed back down to Earth were EKG measurements. So they were able to monitor the heart rate and heart rate variability, which is the beat-to-beat difference in your heart rate, uh, of these cosmonauts while they were working in, uh, the, in, in outer space. And um, so what they noticed was a particular breathing pattern that they went into during those time periods. And that just happened to be, this cycle of about um, five to seven breaths per minute, where their breathing got very slow when they were very, very concentrated, and the output of their work quality was very good. So what they did was they started training um, cosmonauts cosmonauts in that particular breathing pattern so that when they went up into space, they could be highly effective. But they also started training Olympic athletes and um, people in the military and all sorts of Um, echelons of society where people needed to be high performing with these particular um, techniques of breathing. Now, excuse me, and um, then uh, another area where this was noticed was um, when there were early researchers in the States bringing yogis and Tibetan monks into scientific um, experiments, wiring them up to read their heart rate and heart rate variability and also their brainwave patterns and notice that as soon as these monks and yogis would go into their meditative states automatically their breathing rate would follow along to this five to seven cycle Um, and so what they noticed in that was that certain physiological changes started to happen Um, there was reduction of inflammation in the body the tone of the vagus nerve was improving, cardiovascular health um, starts to perform at its um, kind of optimal at that level. So all sorts of side effects aside from the benefits of meditating too. So uh, there are this type of breathing then began began being used in biofeedback uh, and other types of modalities that were used in anxiety and stress and depression. And that's really how I learned about it from um, reading about biofeedback research and things like that, and also from um, meeting some people who were working with the original scientists from Leningrad, who had made these discoveries in the in the cosmonauts. So I started practicing this resonance breathing on my own, and oh, also my wife had taken a workshop with a doctor named Richard Brown, who's up at Columbia, uh, who does trainings in this kind of breathing, and. we had tried to make somehow on my iPhone uh, a counter that would would ring a bell every six seconds so you would know when to inhale or exhale. and It didn't work very well. And Dr. Richard Brown had some recordings also that I didn't like too much because every time the bell rang, uh, it made me anxious to start my breath exactly at that right time. So I wasn't happy with his recording, and, um, but I really liked the breathing. And I would put a clock in front of myself and just count off five or six seconds on an inhale and five or six on an exhale. And finally, after looking around and not finding anything on the internet or in the app store that suited the needs I was looking for, I decided to make my own. And I had three basic requirements for what I wanted to build. Number one, it needed to be aesthetically pleasing because everything I was seeing on the internet that was going to count off those ratios for you was like not aesthetically pleasing. And I didn't feel like looking at it because when I watched it, it didn't put my mind into a frame that I felt was you know, meditative. So I wanted it to be really soothing and aesthetically pleasing. I didn't want there to be any equipment that you needed to hook yourself up to. So for a lot of the HRV or the heart rate variability apps, you need a chest belt or you need some other kind of a monitor um, with heart math, you need an ear clip, all these types of things. I like. I didn't want that. I just wanted something that was going to help you breathe in a smooth, coherent manner. And then the last thing was I thought it should be free because, you know, breathing is free. So if you're going to help someone to breathe, why should you charge the money on the app store? So those were my three requirements. And I started building something with a friend of mine named Sergei Berichev. He's an app programmer and designer from Belarus. From Belarus who lives in Amsterdam now. And we spent about uh, a year or so designing and building it. And then we launched it uh, about um, a year and a half ago now uh, in in Amsterdam at the Inner Peace Conference. Uh, We've had about 100,000 downloads, a little bit more than that so far. And I think we're doing pretty good on the App Store. We have 90 reviews or so and a 4.8 star rating. And people are writing in quite often that it's helping them sleep. It's helping them with uh, anxiety when they fly, anxiety in general, helping people with fibromyalgia and different kinds of body pains. Uh, People use it with their children to help calm them down. And so all across the board, I think it's basically, um, and people use it for meditation and it's addressing the the types of things we were looking for. So um, I hope that's not too long an answer, but that's a little bit of a background on uh, what the coherence breathing is. and you know, how we built the app and why we did it. And another important thing about coherence breathing is that when you breathe at five to seven, specifically when you breathe at six breaths per minute, um, a a cycle of six for one minute is basically one-tenth of a hertz. And one-tenth of a hertz for our brainwave function is a delta brainwave state. So when we go into a cycle of breathing of one-tenth of a hertz – our brainwave patterns begin to follow our breath. And the deep sleep pattern with no dreaming, which is delta wave, delta sleep, is um, basically like a meditative state. So when you're meditating, it's like being in a deep sleep, but you are awake. And so when you breathe for, say, 15 or 20 minutes in a coherent fashion, automatically your brainwave patterns begin to follow your breath pattern And you can go into a very uh, deep, quiet state of meditation. So it's also like meditation for people who say they can't meditate or, you know, or don't want to meditate, but they know that they should.
1: Right, right. It's like a way of tricking people into getting into that if they believe that it's impossible or intimidating or something that's not achievable to them. I I find the whole story of how um, this came of interest or was at least put on your radar really interesting because... You know these are techniques that the the texts and our theory and our our teachers tell us have been around for ages but it was you know the the cosmonauts is the the astronauts out in space where we're reading into more scientific metrics that brought more attention and focus onto it and when you you mentioned another study where the same readings were being tested or actually more complicated and more involved metrics were being taken from seasoned meditators and yogis. Was that in response to the original study with the cosmonauts or happening in parallel separately?
0: No, this was happening separately. Okay. Um,
1: and, uh, it was, and you
0: know, the stuff coming out of Leningrad, there were like tons of studies and a lot of research and, um, the, from the Tibetan monks, this was something that was noticed repeatedly in regards to respiratory patterns and heart rate variability change in meditation.
1: Right. I was wondering when you were when you were listing off all the all these side effects and benefits, the inflammation, the vagus nerve toning, the cardiovascular health, if you would bring in the the brain wave patterning, and that's something that I find really interesting. Um, do you do you find that of all these these people, these 100,000 downloads that are coming in through the App Store, that many of them are existing yoga practitioners? Or is it people from outside of our world who are finding this to be an approachable way to get into that space?
0: Yeah, I think it's a good combination. There are a lot of yoga people using it, but there are definitely um, people outside of the yoga world using it. I have a lot of psychologists saying to me, that they've been recommending it to their patients to use because it's a good way of teaching uh, their patients who don't know how to, you know, you can never say you don't know how to breathe, but you need to breathe more consciously, that it's a very simple way of of helping people breathe more consciously uh, to down-regulate the sympathetic nervous system. And essentially that's what it's doing, is that after a certain amount of minutes, and it's different for everybody depending on the state of your nervous system, but um, the equal inhale and the equal exhale in a slow ratio is bringing the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system into an equilibrium. Um, and it's signaling from the respiratory rate um, and the changes in the heart rate variability to the baroreceptors receptors near the carotid artery that are monitoring your blood pressure send a signal to the brain and that comes back down to the heart. And there's about a five-second delay between the messages from the baroreceptors to the brain to the change in in heart rhythms. And that's why we're breathing in this five to six-second inhale and exhale to line ourselves up with our internal messaging systems. And um, so what happens then is the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system begin to come into an equilibrium. And there's really no other time of the day that that happens. Normally, they're either sympathetic overdrive, you know, sympathetic um, tending towards or tending towards parasympathetic, depending on our activities. Um, And so what begins to happen is the sympathetic nervous system naturally begins to downregulate in that equilibrium. So anxiety reduces and stress reduces and panic reduces. Um, The and as you know, in our modern society, in fact, modern societies have been around for a very long time. They go back thousands of years. As long as there's been society, it's always been modern at that particular time when the society existed. Mm, right. And um, so, you know, all these practices that we do are essentially targeting the down regulation of sympathetic nervous system like meditation, pranayama, asanas, doing nice things for people, being kind and expressing compassion. All of these downregulate the sympathetic nervous system. So why do we need to do that? It's because our nervous system developed in such a way that we survive. And in order to survive, we perceive threats. And as societies become more sophisticated, our nervous system doesn't go along with that sophistication, but it's retained these very basic survival mechanisms so that we begin to perceive threats where there aren't any. And every time we perceive a threat where there is not a threat, like an imagined confrontation with somebody or imagining the repercussions of missing a payment on a late bill, um, your credit score going down, any of those types of things slowly begin to push us more towards uh, you know, this sympathetic inflammation in our system. And uh, that's been going on for like a long, long time. It's wired into us. So we need sophisticated um, practices like slowing the breath, which is very simple, but it's a hack of the nervous system, in order to make sure that we don't constantly go into the sympathetic overdrive, don't constantly go into um, a, a position where we're inflaming our body and inflaming our mind, and then having to deal in real-world world situations with the repercussions of that kind of inflammation, Um so, you know, I think the yogis were very, very onto it with these practices that, um, they, you know, they've passed down to us. This is the legacy we're holding on to.
1: So, we have our sympathetic nervous system, which sometimes is referred to as kind of the, the trigger of the fight, flight, or freeze response. And we have the parasympathetic nervous system, which is more the rest and digest. And If the average person's pace of breathing is, I think you said 12 to 15 breaths per minute, that's about twice the speed of that sweet spot that this app is bringing us to. Does that mean that generally most people tend to err on the side of the sympathetic in their day-to-day life without the intervention of this nervous system hack?
0: Well, um, I think that it's, it's, it's close to a fair statement. If we're breathing at 15 to 18 breaths per minute, so everybody is different, but um, it, it you know anywhere between twelve to eighteen is what you're going to hear in most of the literature. Um, first of all, the sympathetic and parasympathetic are branches of our autonomic nervous system, and um, they are. And then we have this peripheral branch, and we have a somatic branch. And somatic branch is things like, you know, moving our our muscles and our bones and activity and locomotion and. Autonomic is the things that we don't have to think about that are being carried out like respiration and heart rate and blood pressure, digestion, sexual reproduction, and sleep. Those are things we don't need to, to act, you know, actively carry out ourselves. They're the survival mechanisms. And it's just one branch of our peripheral nervous system. Um, however, it's a branch that drives a very important part of our lives, which is being alive. So the, um, when you talk about sympathetic is um, fight or flight, then um, really all that is is it, we only go into fight or f- flight when we're in hyperarousal and there's a threat of danger. If there's not a threat of danger, the sympathetic nervous system is still working absolutely fine and it's doing all sorts of important things like releasing um, adrenaline and cortisol when we do any simple activity like standing up to walk across the room or um, you know, standing on our heads in yoga um, as well. Uh, anything which requires some sort of dilation is going to be ruled by the sympathetic nervous system. So when we inhale and our heart speeds up a little, that's ruled by sympathetic nervous system, but it's not because we're in fight or flight. It's just because this is what that branch of our autonomic system does. And parasympathetic is anytime there's a restful type of response. So, for example, uh, the slowing down of the heart rate when we exhale. Um, So every single organ of our body has both sympathetic and parasympathetic nerves going to it. And they're complementary. And they're supporting the function by like an inhale and an exhale or um, uh, uh, expansion and contraction like the beating of the heart or peristalsis which is the squeezing of the intestines and also different internal organs. Blinking of our eyes. All these different types of things which are the rhythmic processes of our body are going back and forth between opening and closing, um, expanding and contracting, pulsing and resting, and um and so sometimes the sympathetic nervous system, when it's always referred to as fight or flight, it's like not accurate. Um, it's, that's only in hyperarousal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the freeze mechanism or the immobilization response is part of a very ancient um, part of the paras, uh, parasympathetic nervous system, which is related to the vagus nerve, according to Dr. Stephen Porges. And this is when there's a total threat to your life and you've you become immobilized it's like feigning death um this happens when people are traumatized or they're attacked Uh, but there are other types of immobilizations also there's there's danger immobilizations where you are where you're fearing for your life and then you totally freeze and shut down you and that's actually your nervous system shutting down your mind might still be active but the nervous system shuts down um, if, if people are attacked and they know martial arts and someone says, well, why didn't you fight back? You know, you know all these things. Well, your nervous system is disallowing you from fighting back in that moment. Or if you're in a situation where, say you're in a classroom and someone is being ridiculed uh, and uh, or someone is being abusive, a teacher towards a student or something like that, even verbally, and that's a trigger for you. Your nervous system, you might find like, even though you want to speak out, you can't. And that wanting to speak out but not being able to is also a shutdown of this old, old branch of the nervous system. So immobilization is a little bit different than fight and flight. Um, and I'm sorry, I've gone off on a total tangent other than what the question
1: was you were asking. Me. That's okay. That's okay. This is this is it's really interesting. Um, yeah. I'll respond to the first part, which was the clarification around um, parasympathetic being uh, conflated with a fight and flight response. I think that's very um, typical of our our Western kind of um, way of thinking and organizing ideas to lean straight into the extreme. But I like the way that you explained it as being sort of a give and take and a natural process of homeostasis in the body. These things don't need to necessarily take you to the point of um, true survival response. It, survival is subtle right it's, it's that's the ha and ta yeah. of yoga it's like the constant push and pull to bring us into balance
0: yes it's, it's very well said the survival is very subtle um and um and that's essentially what the autonomic nervous system does in a very quiet way it maintains our heartbeat it maintains our respiration through deep centers in the brain it, it maintains our blood pressure and our body temperature by monitoring outside changes of the environment without, you know, getting in the way of the rest of the stuff we do with our lives. Mm -hmm. So there's this very quiet background hum of life, which lies below the surface of all of our excess thinking that we do all the time. And um, it's this very quiet hum, which we want to address in the yoga practices. Yes. Um, Because when we do, um, it begins to open us to greater capacities for, um, for having facility, not just with our body and our breath, but with higher brain centers as well. Um, expanding our emotional capacities, uh, expanding our creativity, um, our potential. All of these types of things begin to open up. Sometimes just after the first time you go to a yoga class, lie down and rest at the end for 10 minutes, you open up a, a totally new person when you when you open your eyes up again
1: yes and if it's your first time taking a yoga class and you experience something like that you may not be able to have an explanation why but you can certainly understand something is happening you you obviously have quite a breadth of knowledge around the nervous system and the way that these effects are realized in the body what is your personal practice looking like at this point in, in your life and Do you use that knowledge to influence the way that you practice?
0: Um, Well, I mean, I really like Ashtanga yoga. I've been doing it since 1991, since you know, as my regular practice. So I'm I'm quite a big fan of of that approach to yoga. Uh, And there's certain things I've learned over the years, like if you can't breathe, you're trying too hard. And then it's not going to give you a good effect. Um, so I try to watch my breathing through, like we've all been taught, of course, while I do my practice. And if there are points where I notice that I'm holding my breath when I do something, then I just observe that and try to figure out how to breathe in those in those challenging places. Um, so I still do ashtanga yoga. I don't do all the asanas that I used to do when I was younger. And... Um, most of that is just because of the amount of work that I do. I I don't feel that I'm, I mean, I'm I'm over 51 now, moving towards 52. I don't feel old and my body doesn't feel old, but I don't have the same facility that I used to. And I think a lot of that is from teaching five or six hours a day for like 25 years or so. And um, otherwise than that, um, I have a meditation practice. I have a practice of doing puja of ritual and um and pranayama is included in within the you know my morning asana and pranayama practice so i definitely think about um you know the nervous system while i'm doing pranayama um i think about awareness more when i'm doing asanas and not so much about the nervous system and because I think that when you, when you move your awareness through your body and you listen, your body tells you what you should be doing and what you need to be doing. So that I kind of listen on that level with asanas. With pranayama, I try to feel more the nervous system response to what I'm doing. Is my nervous system receptive to how I'm changing my breath? Or is it resistant to how I'm changing my breath? Uh, so that's that level. And then for ritual, it's only just, um, you know, uh, devotion and offering and things like that. So that's kind of how I uh, approach my practices.
1: Great. Let's talk about your book. Um, I know that you have kind of used the book as a way to revisit yoga as a whole and, and the way that it's benefiting people in modern times. We, I think it's very easy for the, the average you know, 21st century person to think about mental and physical benefits. Are you getting into these ideas that dig a little deeper into um, perhaps even that ritual part of your practice, the devotion?
0: Um, in the book, I didn't really go too much into the ritual practices. We talk a little bit about chanting, but not mm-hmm. too much. Uh, and prim- primarily from this view of um, what does vocalization do to the vagus nerve and what does vocalization do to um, sort of establish a connection between the heart and the throat and the mind, um, which is actually how Darwin talked about the vagus nerve. So, um, so yeah, I think in, in the next book, I'll probably go a little bit more into ritual.
1: So what was the... Um... What was the reason? Why did you decide to write the book?
0: Well, the, I've been playing around for about 10 years with the idea of writing a book. Mm-hmm. And um, the, um, one of the things that I've been thinking about was that um, I, um, I wondered if I could write a book that in some way would, um, would not necessarily be about Ashtanga Yoga but would be more about yoga in general. And one of the reasons for that was um, that when I started doing yoga in the 1980s, we didn't think about yogas in in, in terms of brands. Um, You know, now we think Ashtanga yoga, Angar yoga, hot yoga, all that kind of stuff. And, And now with all the branding of yoga, people see them as like, distinct things like oh you know you're an ashtangi oh you're you know you do bikram oh you know and then but Bikram's not a good system because of blah and ashtanga is not a good system because of blah and the feeling that i had when i first started doing yoga was it was just all yoga you know no one really cared about um brands of yoga maybe they were interested in different teachers like oh Shivananda had this particular approach or you know um I anger had this particular approach, but there wasn't the branding and the brand distinction and sort of the feeling of rivalry or competition or disparaging between groups. It kind of started creeping in as the branding process got more fixated. So, I mean, I don't know if you noticed this or if anybody else did, but I was feeling it. And, um, and I, and I don't really care about brands. You know, I don't really care about Ashtanga Yoga as a brand. Um, I just like, you know, the practice when I learned it from my teacher and I felt it was really effective. But, um, but I didn't think of it as this like separate thing. It was just yoga. So in my mind, I was thinking, you know, can I recapture that sort of feeling um, in myself in writing something that... You know, you know, is drawing from what I learned from my teacher, but also speaks about yoga in, in a very general way, like what is all of this doing for us? Because all of the yogas seem to work. Like for everyone who's doing any kind of yoga, no matter what kind of yoga it is, everyone feels a little better, they get a little healthier, maybe they're a little happier or a little kinder, maybe they feel a greater sense of purpose, or, in, you know, in your words, perhaps dharma, They feel more of that in their lives. Um, Maybe their anger reduces or they become more thoughtful, uh, start taking better care of their bodies. All these types of things happen to everyone universally, no matter what kind of yoga they happen to be doing. So there must be something which links all yoga practices together underneath the surface and that the outer form is like completely arbitrary. But something underneath it is working. And I wondered, what's that thing underneath, which is working for everybody, no matter what type of yoga they do? And that's what I wanted to write about.
1: And did you arrive at what that one underlying theme, what that one underlying connecting thread is?
0: Um, I'm not too sure. I mean, I, I... I mean... It was sort of tongue-in-cheek that I called it one simple thing because I thought that simple thing was, well, it's just yoga. Well, then what's the answer to that? What's mm-hmm. yoga? Um, number one, I think Patanjali defined it very well when he said yoga is the stilling of the fluctuations in the field of mind, or however you want to translate it. There are a lot of nuanced ways. But definitely one thing which connects all yogas is it to you're using your mind to focus your awareness in some type of a way. And in that state of focused awareness, different changes begin to happen physiologically. And some of those changes have predictable responses, especially if you're consciously moving and consciously breathing. And some of those predictable responses are going to be downregulation regulation of sympathetic nervous system, the upregulation of the parasympathetic nervous system, uh, the slowing of the heart rate through the slowing of the breath. And when all of those things begin to happen, then the orientation of your sense of self begins to shift. Um, so I think that's definitely a very simple underlying characteristic of a practice that uses the body breath and focused awareness together at the same time. You're gonna get a predictable response. And that's why yoga is a science. Right.
1: That that next line in the in the sutras is, is sometimes translated as so that the seer can abide in its own nature. Do you, do you feel that this part, this like second clause there about self deconstruction, is that something that is necessary and universal to all types of yoga? I have my own thoughts on this, but I'm curious what yours are. What do you mean by self deconstruction? Well, you can answer, you can pick that apart too, but what I mean by that is at least some sort of contemplation around what that even means. Not self deconstruction, but the self.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't clear on what you meant by self deconstruct. Deconstruction is a very particular philosophical term. Um, so I just wonder like how you're using it and what you mean by that before and I want to hear your thoughts on it too, but before I answer just want to know what you're asking me
1: maybe a better term than that's less um less loaded would be self-investigation that's what i mean Uh uh-huh
0: right yeah so with without self-investigation do you make progress
1: i think that's a good question i mean the reason why i bring it up is you know all these different brands of yoga or lineages or schools however you want to think about them each of them places a different amount of emphasis on that i mean you look at traditional classic ashtanga yoga and it leans very heavily into the texts. You, you're hard-pressed to meet an ashtanga yoga practitioner who isn't at least somewhat familiar with the yoga sutras however you know you walk into the average um i don't even know like power yoga class maybe they don't even know about that you know maybe they're attracted to the physical practice and my, my thoughts on this are that's fine. You know, you can go in there and be focused on getting a physical and mental benefit and in due time, all things unfold naturally. I think you get there naturally, even if it's not intentionally your your purpose going into the class.
0: So do I think that occurs?
1: Yeah. Do you agree with that? What are your thoughts on it?
0: I agree with that. Um, I think that, um, a- again, if you're Moving with awareness and moving consciously and breathing consciously and applying focused awareness in a conscious manner, it, the result of that is an inward movement of attention. And in that inward movement of attention, you pay attention to, the, to either your breath or your body or your mind in ways that you haven't before. And when that happens, that's basically you have a self-discovery. And this is what you're talking about in regards to self-investigation. Like you are investigating your body, your breath, and your mind through paying attention to them in ways that you haven't before. Mm -hmm. And I've never Mm -hmm. been to a core power yoga class, um, but I have some friends who go and they quite like it and they feel really good when they do it. And so it seems that this is happening to them in those classes as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, And I think that a lot of the things that we find in text, not all of them, but a lot of the things serve as um, reinforcements to the things that we've discovered in ourselves already. And that's a very good way to use the yoga text is to practice on your own, have an experience. And when you read in a text that experience being described, you feel confident in your own abilities and capabilities to travel you know, on your path, and still be hitting the marks that are spoken about in the texts but not have it necessarily be a top down approach mm-hmm. yeah uh, and i think the yoga texts are very valuable i study them i read them i really enjoy them but i distinctly remember having remember having many experiences when i was first doing yoga that i was having a lot of these inner experiences and discovering things about myself and then i would read about it in a book later and i would think oh That's what was happening to me. And then it validates the experience um, and encourages you to keep going forward.
1: Right. Yeah. And whereas if you had approached it the other other way, you might have been grasping and looking for these experiences that you've read about and understood or believed you understood conceptually. Is that the point you're making? That happens sometimes. And it also
0: happens sometimes that people are not well-practiced and don't have deep experiences. Yet they're told these things by teachers or gurus and then they say this is what's true and then they go off and they tell their students or disciples or devotees, this is what the experience is and this is how you should have it. And if you're not having this experience, then you're not doing it right. And this is a common thing also. Mm -hmm. And then what that does is it makes people feel either shamed or humiliated or like they're not making progress quote-unquote, progress, if there is such a thing. So, um, you know, again, it's not to knock uh, those other approaches. It's just to say that I experienced both of those things in India. And the the path that was a little bit more helpful for me was the path of being taught a practice, being told to do it, and then see what happens. Right. And teachers is there to help guide me.
1: I suppose that's what Patavi Joyce meant when he said it's 99% practice and 1% theory.
0: Uh, Yeah, he might have meant that.
1: (laughs) He might have, (laughs) yeah. Uh, Eddie, can you share one, what was your biggest lesson that you learned from writing the book? And maybe that stemmed from a challenge that in the process of writing it, or perhaps it was something that you learned from some sort of triumph.
0: Well... One thing was I didn't know if I'd be able to do it. Um, I, you know, I, I published a magazine, I co-published a magazine and I have been for 13 years and I've co-published a bunch of books, uh, collaborated on things, but I'd never written a book all by myself. And I really wondered whether or not I was going to be able to do it. So that was one thing as a challenge. Could I actually write and finish a book? And the first draft of the book was was vastly different than what I ended up with. And after I read my first draft, then I realized, oh, that's not what I wanted to say. I actually wanna talk about this. And then I changed tracks and rewrote a lot of the book. And then I realized this is what I wanted to talk about. Uh, so that um, that's what I learned, was that you, you know, the thing you write down first isn't necessarily what you wanna say. And then the second thing I learned was that Uh, I could finish something like this on my own. Um, And um, I mean, of course, you always have support, you have editors, you have publishers, you have friends, you have people you get knowledge from, you have the internet, you have computers, you have all these things to help you. But uh, again, I was the one who had to sit down on a chair for an hour every morning before I practiced at 3.30 and and write this book. So that was a, a nice experience. And now I'm uh, looking forward to beginning the process I've already begun the process on the next one so um uh, that's that's kind of what I learned that I could do it
1: and you did congratulations and,
0: and thank you and, I, and I'm really happy about it and um, i uh, you know so and and I've been getting nice feedback which is always gratifying and I just hope that it's you know i hope that first of all I hope that it's accurate and second of all, I hope that it's useful. Um, mainly, I had a bunch of different scientists and doctors read through it to check the scientific information for me. And they were also people who are well-versed in yogic knowledge and knowledge of the Vedas. So I had um, you know, some cross-checking of the philosophy portions as well. And you know, people can always nitpick about this perspective or that perspective. But generally speaking, from those that field of experts, I got the stamp of approval. So I felt comfortable putting it out in the world. So, uh, you know, and that was nerve wracking. I was really nervous every time I gave the book to, you know, to a neurosurgeon, mm-hmm. for example.
1: Yeah. Well, that's great that you got the stamp of approval. I, I really look forward to reading it. It's on my bookshelf here. I've got a long list of books that I need to read, but this is giving me a little incentive to dig deeper into them. Um, As
0: I say to everyone, you know, if you don't have time to read the whole book, um, just start at chapter 11 and read that. And if you read chapter 11, most of the interesting information is there. Everything before chapter 11 is primarily yoga-oriented and philosophy-oriented with a little bit of science. Okay. But it's chapter 11 where we really get into, like, how does philosophy and science tie together in yoga? Ah. So if you you read that chapter and then if you... Like it, you can read the rest of the book, but also you might just be fine only reading that chapter.
1: Okay, okay. And Eddie, what is one thing that you're excited about coming up in your future, something that you're working on? Um,
0: well, I have like a lot of things going on simultaneously, and I think I'm equally excited about all of them. Um, right now, we are... Um, I work with a... Um, uh, organization in South Jamaica, Queens called Life Camp. And they are a gun and harm reduction um, nonprofit. They've been working for a long time in this area to primarily reduce gun violence in this um, in Cashman area in Queens of about one square mile, but also other types of violence. And I've been training um, a group of people in yoga and meditation each year within that group. I'm also the, on the board of directors there. And, um, what we've been doing is, and it's called the urban yogis and what we do is we train youth and young adults, primarily from the housing developments in that area, how to be yoga and meditation teachers. And then we help find them jobs in public schools and in other types of arenas as yoga teachers. So basically, um, You're looking at an area of New York where there's very low access to these modalities. And you're also looking at an industry in America, which is a multi-billion dollar industry. Um, And yoga, frankly, is not very difficult to teach. So there's no reason why these young adults from these areas should not be yoga teachers and be able to benefit from the money stream, which is available to yoga teachers in this country. So what we've been doing is we've been doing free trainings for them, get them to the point where we're confident in their abilities, and then we help them to find jobs as yoga teachers. But primarily we do it within public education. And one of the reasons for that is is in a lot of these um, Title I schools in Queens and in Brooklyn, there's money available from the government for Title I funding. So they can get $5,000 grant each year, $2,500 grant each year, for health and wellness programming and essentially that's what yoga is it's an it's mental and emotional wellness and it's physical wellness as well so it fits very properly and exactly into this funding so we help the schools with grants and if they already have grants then we um, create programs where they can use our teachers to address their student body with these types of techniques and one really uh, encouraging thing is that the Department of Mental Health for Public Education in New York has now started referring schools to our program when they have money or receive grants for emotional wellness and mental health programming they're being directed towards us so that we can provide them with those services of yoga teachers who come from a very similar background as the kids who are already in those schools so they relate very well to the yoga teachers um, So that's one of the things I've been working on for a bunch of years. The yoga part of it was started by myself, Deepak Chopra, and a woman named Erica Ford. And Erica Ford is the founder of Life Camp in general that's been working out there. Um, She was friends with Tupac Shakur and with um, Salt and Peppa and Run DMC and LL Cool J and 50 Cent and all the rappers that came out from those areas, from that area in particular were all her friends and so the original basis for life camp came out from the street code that she and tupac shakur created to reduce gun violence in between rival gangs
1: wow how cool is that
0: it's it's crazy cool she's an amazing human being and um so right now we're working with um two new groups of trainees uh, one on tuesday nights and one on thursday nights and our next move out there is um that I, I think we're going to try to open uh, the first yoga school ever in South Jamaica, Queens. And the yoga school is going to be, the yoga school is going to be run by um, uh, the trainees who come through our urban yogi trainer training program. So we're thinking that the yoga school will be called the urban yogi Academy. And of course I'll give support and Marcus is going to help me as well. And, you know, with customer service and how to deal with the public and all those things, I'll be training them in yoga. And basically what they'll do is they'll have a a yoga school that they can run out there to have another stream of income from. And, you know, it won't be $25 classes. We'll probably have like between $8 and $12 yoga classes and we'll create a schedule. And then that space will also be used for other life camp uh, wellness and well-being programming counseling and uh, meditations and things like that as well so that's one thing i'm working on that i'm very excited about
1: very cool i love that and i had no idea so thank you for sharing that if
0: um sure maybe sometime you can come out there and do some trainings um with with the students it would be amazing
1: yeah i would love to to do that and for anyone who's listening who might be in the area is there some way that they can um perhaps get involved or learn more about what you're doing with that? Uh, We
0: have a website called UrbanYogis.org, and you can read about what we're doing on that website. And also one thing that we want to do and that we need to do is um, we have a space. It's a, it's a ground level retail space that we're going to be able to use. We need to do some renovation in there and then I want to raise money. So we have rent for two years in that space. The rent sum, including utilities, is $2,000 a month. So, not a lot not of money. Not bad. And uh, so, basically, my goal is to raise $50,000, which can be used just to ensure we have a space there for two years and that the income that comes in will go to the people who are teaching. And then, you know, after that, we'll see what kind of financial condition we're in. Um, are we able to maintain it just on classes or do we need to do another round of fundraising? Mm-hmm. So if people want to donate towards space rental, um, you know, they can do that through the website as well. And all that money will just, you know, right now go towards maintaining the integrity of that space. Uh, Otherwise, we have grants to come in from other people. The Pinkerton Foundation gave us an amazing grant this year, which has supported programming in five public schools and is also supporting the um, programming for the teacher trainings that we're doing for the new urban yogis. And will also support free classes in the housing developments in South Jamaica throughout the summer, twice a week of free classes.
1: Great. So that information is at urbanyogis.org.
0: So, yes, it's all on urbanyogis.org. The yoga school stuff isn't up there yet, but just for your listeners to know yeah. that, you know, if they feel like supporting that kind of a
1: project, we would love it. Great. Okay. Eddie, now is the perfect time to slide into the final section of this interview, which is the prana round. I'm gonna ask okay. I'm gonna ask you six rapid fire questions and ask you to answer minimum one word, maximum one sentence. Okay. Oh my god. <laughs> this is a challenge. This is the challenge. You heard, you heard how terrible I am, like even
0: answering the simplest <laughs> questions. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna do it. All right. I'm ready. I'm doing woolabunda right yes, now.
1: Squeeze. Okay. In one word, why do you practice yoga? Love. What's your favorite yoga pose and why? Is that a two-word answer also? that's You can have a whole sentence.
0: I don't know what my favorite yoga pose is, and I also don't know why.
1: What's the single best cue or piece of advice that you've ever received from a yoga teacher? Don't think recommend one book apart from one simple thing of course which will join our listeners books on their bookshelf.
0: Uh Harry Potter volumes 1 through 7.
1: <laughs> okay. Is Yoga for Everyone. Yes. Last question.
0: Except for those who don't want to do it.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you don't want to do it, don't force yourself. Okay, how can our audience get in touch with you and how can we support you in your dharma? Um,
0: my email address is eddystern at me.com and my website is eddystern.com and my Instagram name is also eddystern. I'm not terribly original and, um, that's how they can get in touch with me. And, um, basically anyone who writes me, I answer back. Sometimes it takes me a little while. but uh, but I definitely do it. And I didn't like my answer to my favorite yoga pose, but but I'm not going to change it. It's 11.11 right now on my clock. Make a wish, Henry wins, and it will come true.
1: Okay, I made it and it already came true, which was that we had an amazing, beautiful conversation. (laughs) And I really appreciate you taking the time today, Eddie. I learned a lot from this and I'm sure the Dharma Talk community did. As well so thank you again and I hope to see you and continue this conversation in the future
0: definitely thanks for having me on Uh, I, I hope I didn't go off on the wrong tangents all the time I do sometimes but please I'm issuing you an invitation to come out sometime this summer and do some yoga classes with all of our trainees they would really love it and it would expose them to a whole new way of doing yoga not just the stuff that I do all the time So um, please uh, accept in front of all of your listeners that invitation and we will begin to do great
1: work together. I accept. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Hey, Dharma Talk community. If you enjoyed this podcast and you haven't done so already, please hit the subscribe button right now. And if you'd like to show your support even more, leave me an honest review on iTunes or whatever podcast directory you listen on can also make a financial contribution to keep the show up and running a donation at henrywinds.com and remember i'm here to serve you so if you have any questions or comments or ideas you can always reach me on instagram at henrywinds otherwise i'll speak to you next week keep living your dharma